Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Cisco. Modern modernization today has the products you need to modernize your workplace, like Wi-Fi booster crystals. Let their metaphysical powers enhance connectivity and spiritually awaken your Internet of Things. At CDW, we get crystals won't modernize your network. You need Cisco Catalyst access points that are Wi-Fi 6 compatible and can help you improve reliability, increase capacity, and reduce latency. Cisco and IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash Cisco. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we gonna have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Jumping right into this podcast today after some lightning fast plugs. Thanks for the support on patreon.com slash Shane Moss. Uh, really helps out the podcast and I'm putting more content on there that you can check out. Hear a little more about my life and I've been exploring my personal biases lately. Been having some fun with that. Check that out if you want. Also, go to shanemoss.com to check out my schedule. Coming up in May, I will be in Minneapolis and Grand Rapids. I'm going to start filling in uh, dates for the summer and the fall very soon. So thank you very much, and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with grad student at Wichita State University in the Biodiversity Laboratory, where she studies dung beetle diversity and its interaction with carrion. Rachel Stone is joining Hello. me. Hey, thanks for having me in yeah. your lovely home. Happy to. I appreciate it. I got a hold of you uh, last minute. Someone suggested you. I found out that you studied dung beetles. Yeah. So exciting. The most lovable of beetles. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> what are other beetles eating? Um. Well, God, other beetles are eating just about anything you can think of. We've got... Beetles that are eating leaf litter, beetles that are eating Boring. other beetles. Oh, that's kind that's of exciting. That's pretty cool. Okay, yeah. And then the most metal of all, the beetles that eat dead stuff, uh, dead yeah. animals. Those would be our carrion beetles, for example. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, just about anything that's edible. Mm. And so so you do the um, dung beetle diversity with its interaction with carrion. So, yeah. so are, they, are these dung beetles also eating the carrion? Um, that's a really good question, and that's kind of what I'm wondering. Um, there's a lot of weird history with dung beetles and carrion, and we know for sure that when we bait a trap with a dead animal, um, dung beetles are attracted to it. So, you know, you go out and do a study trying to find information on the range of carrion beetles, for example. You stick out these traps with dead rats, and the cups are getting overfilled with dung beetles. Mm. Um, we also know that dung beetles feed on carrion in um, regions of the world close to the equator. So tropics and uh, tropical regions of Africa and Central America, for example. Um, we know that dung beetles are filling this niche of feeding on carrion because carrion beetles don't have a range that extends to that region. So it's really an interesting example of um, uh, enterprising insect finding this open niche and filling it. But in temperate regions like our own here in Kansas, we have carrion beetles, and we also have a lot of herbivore dung. So you wouldn't think that a dung beetle would be stepping out of its place, really, and feeding on dead animals. But we still see them coming to carrion here. Um, and it's been hypothesized before that dung beetles are uh, indirectly attracted to carrion. So as the process of decomposition is going on, the gastrointestinal tract of an animal becomes exposed. And so mm. really, they're still going after the dung. Right, it's right. just like it's just inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, my research was kind of looking at that exactly. In the Flint Hills of Kansas, we had for a, a year-long study just a number of transects out there slinging dead rats on the ground and seeing where they're coming, um, where the dung beetles are coming to the carrion. So whether or not they're targeting the the tail region where you would expect if they're actually attracted to the gastrointestinal tract, they'd be targeting that region versus how they're um, targeting the head region, which would be more likely to be targeted by carrion feeding insects um, like flies and carrion beetles for sure. So kind of um, comparing the distributions of dung beetles on these two, if you can imagine, micro habitats of a rat. So you just uh, throw out a dead rat and they come a running? Um, basically, yeah. Um, How far away are they Are they um, smelling the... Yeah, they can, on a, on a good day, they can sense it from uh, kilometers away. Mm. Um, they are picking up the odor cues through... Uh, the wind basically so they just if the wind carries it to them and they'll fly into the wind directly to the source the best they can hmm. um so if, i mean first off 
uh, how uh, how is it that you got into uh, I mean was it just you were ever since you were a little girl you just knew that dung beetles were or, or <laughs> what? you found out that there's a beetle that was interested in dung and you just got obsessed I've had a pretty meandering uh, life in terms of what I thought I wanted to do mm-hmm. um, and but I think the constant throughout my life has been that I've always just been fascinated by the knowledge that there are other worlds going on below our feet, tiny worlds all around us that we don't even consider. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to catch roly polies all the time and just kind of ponder them in my hand. Um, but for a long time, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I think every teenage girl does. And um, from there, I started to get um, interested in parasites, like ticks and things that you might find on a dog. And I think I started to, just the more I learned... Um, become, Parasites weren't just... They weren't gross enough. No, that. no, I needed to get grosser. Right. Something that's eaten poop or something. Yeah, yeah, right. But um, I don't know. I think there's something really, really cool about um, the strategies that other organisms have for making it in this crazy world. I just I just saw... What, is that a dung beetle on your shirt? Too? These are actually ticks. Oh, they're ticks. Yeah. So, you have insects. This, is, this really is a lifestyle it for is. you. I've got them on the wall here, too. That's amazing. So I think most people um, that are in any way familiar with a dung beetle have have are used to just having seen the uh, probably on planet Earth or some yeah. some documentary. You see the dung beetle rolling the, the mm-hmm. little ball of, of dung, which that is we it's funny when you always um, like the wheel is considered this great human innovation oh, yeah. like the invention of the right. wheel that changed everything but the dung beetle's been they've doing been doing this it forever yeah. For, yeah it's, it's old news uh, yeah so, i mean why wouldn't you you roll so it's pretty intuitive you put something in a circle right. it works rolls way better than a square yeah. i'm sure I don't think the wheel was that hard to no, figure out. No, you don't see like That's cubes oversold. of dung getting pushed around. <laughs> um, didn't um, didn't uh, was I reading some sort of uh, old oh what was it Egyptians or something mm-hmm. like that used to worship? Oh dung yeah, beetles. Uh, this one beetle in particular, uh, Scarabius sacer, is the sacred scarab of egypt it's a really cool guy um i have an example you could take a picture of it if you want but it's um really gorgeous uh fairly large beetle and it's what we call a roller which is one of the behavioral behavioral guilds that you'll find in dung beetles so when we think about dung beetles we think about them rolling dung but that's actually just one of the um number of strategies that they employ and uh yeah i bet the other dung beetles hate that i know they, they, the yeah. rollers get all yeah, the they're attention. the real celebrities yeah. of the dung beetle world but yeah these guys were revered in egyptian culture and they sort of this is before television right, right yeah <laughs> didn't have a lot going on but uh it's sort of to them represented this uh, life and death this rebirth of the day um, you know, the cyclical nature of the sun coming over the horizon. And it was represented by this little dung ball that they would roll over mm. a hill, basically. <laughs> that reminds me yeah. of the sun. Oh. <laughs> Life and death and huh. everything. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty poetic. Yeah. Um, well, that it, that is, I mean, it is amazing that there are these little recyclers that mm-hmm. are... Um, 
so crucial to the environment. Uh, you were telling me before the uh, before the podcast that when Australia started bringing cattle over, yeah. they had a problem with all of this stuff. See, I always, me not knowing uh, uh, much about dung beetles, and I don't, I uh, believe it or not, I don't, uh, I don't find myself thinking about dung beetles. That, I know, I'm, I'm sure that seems crazy well, you're to you. One of the weird ones. <laughs> I know, and so I always. I always just thought um, cow manure in, in like, at least in the earlier years where it was a little more free range, I thought mm-hmm. it was fertilizing the soil and whatnot. But I didn't mm-hmm. realize that if you don't have these dung beetles around, the stuff is piling up yeah. and becoming an issue. Yeah. Essentially, they'll just dry up and, and sit there for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll get degraded by microbes and fungi. But once they're dried out like that, it just it takes a long time. They'll just uh, pile up. Um, it's also a problem for um, dung breeding flies. So if you have like a big area where cattle are grazing and pooping everywhere and that's not getting broken down into the ground, uh, dung breeding flies will just kind of take over the place and uh, you'll also get issues with parasites and, and things like that. So dung beetles uh, contribute in a lot of ways that we don't think about. Mm. Was there is there any negative thing to when they brought in the dung beetles to Australia? Like, oh, we didn't foresee this problem, and now we got these damn dung beetles everywhere, and they're ruining this or that. Um, that they, sometimes happens. Yeah, it absolutely does. Whenever we employ biocontrol, I think that there's something bad that comes out of it. Um, they did a pretty good job of researching dung beetles that would um, stay within the range of a, a pasture land. The uh, dung beetles that are native to Australia. Um, don't do well breaking down cattle dung because they don't like to leave forested areas and they're also adapted to feed on only marsupial dung. So they, they kind of, um, keep themselves constricted within this certain kind of range. And then when they brought in cattle, they, um, wouldn't venture out of the forest into this kind of open pasture, which is a really different kind of habitat if you think about it compared to a forest. So they looked specifically for dung beetles that would, thrive in that sort of open, sunny pasture kind of area. Um, but there is some bad. They do seem to overcompete or outcompete um, other species of dung beetle. Um, it's more apparent in the U.S. We brought some African species into the American Southwest region, so a kind of deserty area here too, to break down cattle dung and um since their introduction, they've been kind of moving eastward, and the worry is that they're going to start out competing with the other dung beetles in the region, um, skewing diversity, and and who knows what will happen from there. But um, we've actually just found them in Kansas, so we know that they've made it about halfway across the country so far. So it'll be interesting, um, but perhaps scary to see what will come of that, but it's it's happening right now. How many different species of dung beetle are there? Oh, my God. There's about 7,000 described species of dung beetles, which is basically about how many bird species there are, about 8,000 bird species. It's a pretty diverse group. And they all have their little niches, huh? So, or are they all, I mean, what's the, when you talk about them having different kinds of dung, what's the, what is the point? Why, why are they preferring some dung over, over others or or some of Mm -hmm. them just, whatever dung they can get and yeah, some of them yeah. dung snobs or some are dung snobs some are dung generalists um when you start to think about dung as um this 
habitat in and of itself that's sitting within this uh, landscape that isn't offering any nutrients of any value to certain groups. And then suddenly there's this island of really high nutrients just sitting there. That's also a home for It's also you. a home. Yeah, it's, it's food. It's, it's like home. a gingerbread right. house. Right. And it's also this like um, attractant to females too. So it's where reproduction oh, yeah. happens. Ladies yeah, love a good pile. I know. Of <laughs> the stinkier the better. Yeah. And um, so it's this really, really interesting uh, habitat and in ecological jargon, we call it patchy and ephemeral habitat. So it's patchy in that it's really unle- evenly distributed and ephemeral in that it's very temporary too. So it occurs suddenly and then it disappears. And so the organisms that, uh, require these kind of things. Um, they're really, really fiercely competitive so that they can get their sort of their fair share of this resource. Um, so they've evolved ways to outmaneuver one, one another in really cool ways. Um, so you'll see this sort of partitioning of resources in um, preference for certain kinds of dung. There are dung beetles that, for example, only eat koala dung or only eat sloth dung. Um, and then there's dung beetles that actually eat a wide array of dung. That is it's, such it's a really snob. Cool. It, I know. It, I mean, that's koalas are like the pickiest eater yeah. in the world too. And then you have these really oh, picky yes. beetles. I <laughs> like, only eat eucalyptus <laughs> dung. Yeah. Um. And there's actually really, really cool behaviors with uh beetles that are super, super species specific in the dung they eat. And when that species happens to be really slow moving, like a sloth or a koala, yeah. they'll actually do this weird behavior called a sit and wait technique where they, <laughs> they just sit on the hairs around the anus of the animal and they just wait for the poop to come out and then they jump down and yeah. grab it. So it's just sort that of doesn't this- seem that patient if you're like <laughs> right on the like. But what a strategy. Like no more waiting around to find it or get those odor cues in the environment. They know where that source is at. They're going to sit there and wait for it to come out. And here it comes, boys. Yeah. Yep. Get your forks. Yeah. So, so the, uh, when you talk about, um, some of the competition for this stuff. So, uh, so say, say a cow drops a, this, big just grand prize mm-hmm, right and mm-hmm. then and 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 so what happens just like from from miles away people uh, or people <laughs> from miles away beetles are are uh are are coming are, are there like different species oh, yeah. competing yeah. for the same uh even within dung beetles as this group um there's multiple species that will come but outside of that it's this entire community uh, of insects that come you've got um, the dung breeding flies for example which are also locating that dung as a resource to breed and feed on Um, and then you've also got really cool opportunistic guys coming there's predators that are there specifically because they know that other insects are attracted to dung to feed on it so they're eating the beetles um let's see for beetles you've got um there's some parasitoid wasp species, for example, that are waiting to grab onto a beetle. Um, there are um, staphylinid beetles, for example, that are there as predators to catch other insects. Um, and then there's also hister beetles, which um, have 
a preference to eat maggots. So they'll go in and anything that's decomposing, really, they're attracted to that. And it's not because they want that decom- decomposition uh, resource, but they want uh, to eat the maggots that are <laughs> eating that resource. So there's really, really interesting interactions going on at these habitats. So in and of themselves, they're really, really um, ecologically interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it's not. It it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem quite as easy as as you'd think. I mean, yeah. it doesn't. It's it's kind of a novel source of nutrients. Not a ton of things mm-hmm. going after dung. But, so you're like, well, we're gonna have this dung all to ourselves. Then you show nope. up, and there's all these flies. Yep. And, oh, there goes the neighborhood. All the I know. these other beetles are here. Um. Yeah. So so you got your roly poly, but they're not even. They're not even like the the main one, right? There's there's more. What what are the other what are the other dung beetles uh, doing? First off, why what are the roly polies doing? Why why are they? Um, that's a good question. Things like roly polies are probably um, mostly being attracted to the humidity of it, mm-hmm. um, the moisture content of that dung pat. Um, but roly polies are detritivores, so they eat decomposing leaf litter and things like oh, that. Oh, I meant, I meant, uh, sorry, I meant the rolling dung beetles. Oh, okay, yeah, that yeah, makes sorry. a lot more sense. Yeah, no, of course, I, I just misspoke. Um, it's been the fourth podcast. This I know. Week. Yep. I've been all over the place talking about space and I'll be patient with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, why are they? Because a lot of beetles are just like the 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 dung drops. They're like mm-hmm. this. This is our home now. Yeah. But uh, the the ones rolling it, uh, why are they picking up dung and rolling it away? What's- so um, if you think about dung as this highly nutritious habitat that's suddenly dropped on the ground in this region that's really, really low in nutrients, um, it's this really, really hotly contested um prized possession to get a piece of that. So you'll have all sorts of dung beetles in addition to all the other organisms coming in descending on this um, resource. And um, in order to get their fair share, they've come up with this really remarkable strategy of tearing off a hunk of dung the, dung the best they can, forming it into that ball shape and rolling it away from that uh, immense chaos of the dung pad, which I think is um, a really good way to describe it Really, um, it is intensely, intensely uh, competitive in those regions. Yeah, you just got to get away from the riffraff. Right, cause... exactly. And that's just one of the behavioral guilds that you see in dung beetles. That rolling behavior is really cool and it's easy for us to see it. Um, but there is a dung guild that are known as tunnelers. So they uh, drill into the dung and they excavate these tunnels below the dung pad itself and they'll go up their tunnel and tear off these hunks of dung and stuff it down into these little uh, tunnels underneath the dung pad um, where they'll lay their eggs mm. so building little nests and then I like there's those I also yeah. live in a shithole yeah so. so there you go yeah hey have you heard every single dung pun that there is or do you think that there's one out there i'm really holding out hope that i'm gonna hear a new one today (laughs) really oh man that is that's a lot of pressure on me of course you've heard the show i mean yeah yeah of course um that's (laughs) i like i I like the tone of your yeah yeah of course you're doing good buddy it's pretty good You'll get it. Does it? I mean, <laughs> do, I, 
how often do you hear a new one? What there has to be like once a year where someone comes up with a new dung pun and you're like, Wow, you Oh, did I wish. No? no, it's like there's that. like three. But people must attempt all the time. Right? Is that is that yeah, is it the yeah, worst there's part of like your job? The, oh, you research dung beetles? Oh, that's shitty. <laughs> and, yeah, you know this that right. sort of thing. But, yeah. uh, you think you, I thought I had a shitty yeah, job? Oh, yeah, right. but I, I I'm like holding out hope. See, I have to hear a lot of hack jokes with my job. But yeah, you you are really in a predicament. Yeah, it's rough. Um. Okay. So, <laughs> so you got the shitholers, mm-hmm. uh, and then your 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 rollers. To, uh, and your rollers, mm-hmm. and you're about to tell me about Yeah, and then we have this third group um, called the Dwellers. And so they're the ones that are um, showing perhaps the most ancestral kind of behavior. Um, I don't want to say it's the least evolved, because that's kind of this weird uh, way to describe it, especially for people that don't understand evolution. Um, <laughs> well, they just found something to, that works, and they're sticking Right, exactly. With it. So this is a really, really sort of... Uh, unsophisticated behavior compared to the other behaviors where they'll just tunnel into this dung and they live in it and they eat it. Um, Some of them will actually show a little bit of nesting behavior inside of the dung pat, but others really just kind of wallow in it. And they're they're probably just the best at it. I mean, no one they're they've been doing it forever. No one can compete. Right? Yeah, it's a strategy that still works. So Mm. why would you change it? Hmm. It, it it seems it seems nice. You have this yeah. nice warm spot. You this hole in there. It's malleable. It's easy to mm-hmm. it's easy to shape. What? Uh, so so what happens? One of these one of these guys shows up at the dung, and then what's uh, what's the next step? They just tunnel in there and start chipping away and creating like a uh, space inside. Of some them? of them will, yeah. Some will just drill in. So really. Uh, <laughs> If you come up to a big uh, pad of cattle dung on the ground, you can, and it's dried out a little bit, you can pick it up and crack it open and you'll see all these little tunnels drilled in it and literally just a dung beetle sitting in it. Like there's there's no kind of packed away little cave built or anything like that. Um, mm. Others will show behaviors where they'll um, actually kind of carve out a little space for themselves in there and they'll um, create little um, brood balls inside. So these little, um, encapsulated dung mounds that they'll lay their eggs in. Um, but they're, they're showing this kind of spectrum of the more unsophisticated behaviors, the more ancestral behaviors of dung beetles. When you get into tunnelers, you'll see that tunneling down and also construction of brood balls where they'll lay their eggs and then finally have Perhaps the most sophisticated behaviors with the rollers where they're constructing that really nice round uh, spherical ball, rolling it away and then burying it underground where they'll lay their egg in there. Um, And that's also where you'll start to see because it takes more effort to make that ball and take it away. um, You'll start to see things like um, parental cooperation and, and really cool parental care start types of behaviors with the dung beetles which is honestly pretty rare in the insect world Mm -hmm. and like what what are they so they're actually sticking around and kind of guarding the yeah yeah in some cases they are um but even the fact that they're provisioning nests is uh highly unusual for insects so that's already this really cool um example of an organism that is investing a lot of resources into its young and so you'll see low fecundity um some dung beetles that are really large will only lay one egg in a breeding season which is very crazy for insects um but they're investing a lot of time and effort into their young 
um, and they're trying to ensure the survival of the young too. So you'll see things like um, with tunnelers, for example, um, the mom hanging out in the tunnel, she'll stick around with the brood ball, uh, keep it in an upright position. And they found that if you remove the, the adult maternal dung beetle, um, that fungi will start to grow on that brood ball too. And then the larvae, um, fail to thrive after that. So they're contributing in a lot of ways. You talked about the low fecundity. I, I would have, yeah. if I had to guess, I would have been like a uh, hundred. They have like a hundred right. little beetles or something. like. That. I mean, don't spiders have like a thousand right. or some, yeah. something mm-hmm. crazy like that? Uh, so, but one egg sometimes? Yeah, in some cases. Yeah. So um, the smaller guys, which I worked with a lot of smaller guys uh, in my research, they tend to lay more eggs. But it's still, you'll see the sort of provisioning for a single egg. So still a lot of effort going into a single egg, but they'll make multiple brood balls and lay up to about 70 eggs in a breeding season. Mm. And and are, are both the male and the female sticking around and, and playing a part? Or um, not for the, the guys species? I was study, studying, but yeah, for certain species, that is the case, that they'll cooperate together to form that brood ball and take it away. Um, um, for some tunnelers also, you'll see really cool behaviors uh, where the males will guard the tunnels. So whenever you see a dung beetle with those really, really impressive uh, horns that come up, uh, they can take up quite a bit of space in the tunnel. And that's the idea of those horns is to create these obstacles so that other males can't get past um, to mate with the female behind. Mm, little mate guarding behavior. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, really fascinating. So then you'll see this um, amazing morphological variation within a single species, even where you'll have your major males with those huge horns. You'll have minor males that uh, end up doing cool stuff like being sneaker males. Uh, oh, yeah, they yeah. They have sneakers. They have sneakers. Yeah. So you see this in like cuttlefish and really, um, really cool, uh, comp- complex animals. Yeah. But you also see it in dung beetles. We'll have sneaker males that are able to um, infiltrate the nest and mate with the, the female on the so side. So they pass and, themselves off as a female. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then and then this big jock male yep. guy is like, oh, get in there, right, ladies. Yeah. And he's not terribly discerning. And then he's protecting the other guy's <laughs> <laughs> progeny. It's amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so what is, what, what's some of the, um, uh, what's a dung beetle uh, love life? like usually is uh, i imagine it ranges all over the place but how if you're if you're a dung beetle how are you how are you hooking up like what are they just they're meeting at the dung pat yeah it's, it's that's like the nightclub it's, it's yeah the, it's the singles it's the night home. It's at the every, bar it's yeah everything uh-huh. yep that's uh you very very rarely see pheromones uh with dung beetles okay um, some of them do. They'll like they'll build a dung ball and then they'll release some pheromones to attract the female. But really, it's just dung is attractive stuff to both of them, and they both come in and they meet each other. They may yeah. as well hook up while they're you know. I don't need eating. any clone or anything. I have all this dung. <laughs> yeah. What else could you want? Yeah, exactly. Huh. So uh, it's obviously the s- central part of their uh, survival. Hmm. Is there? Is there any um, when you talk about having having these big horns? Um, are any of them? Uh, is any of that a, a, a part of 
the like mating display or anything or is it both do both males and females have this uh it's it's mostly just a male thing um and it seems to be a, a an example of sexual selection mm-hmm. um you know you've got this uh preference from females to mate with larger males with larger horns um and sort of this trade-off for males where you only have so many resources to go around. So if you've got lots of resources, you can build a really big horn. Um, and that's also kind of a, a, a detriment. It's hard to carry that thing around. It's about one fifth of their body weight. So they're showing, yeah, I can carry this huge extra piece of me around and I still don't get, get eaten by a bird. So I'm the guy you should mate with. Um, so impressive. I know. <laughs> it's cool. Um, so when we were talking about mating behavior and sexual selection and, and, uh, the amount of competition you want, you want the the biggest horns possible and whatnot, what kind of, um, I was curious how much competition there is. Are these, are dung beetles, um, living in groups or are they near each other? Are they, are they kind of flying solo or, um, they're, basically on their own until they're attracted to this, you know, really concentrated source. And so then they're all forced to interact with each other in this really small area of the dung pad itself. And since this is the area where they're, where the males are feeding, meeting the females, um, this is their everything. So you'll see a lot of competition Mm -hmm. to get the dung, to get the girl and so on. Um, So you'll see some grappling kind of behaviors too with the rollers um, where, um, thievery is going on. There's dung beetles trying to steal the, the balls that others have worked hard to form and are trying to take away. Um, you'll see, you know, sometimes multiple dung beetles fighting over a dung ball. Um, but then you'll also see <laughs> how the- long does a dung ball take to construct? Um, it depends. Um, they work faster when it's warmer, but it's, a, it's an investment of some time sometimes an hour or so um, mm. to to build it. And then it's a lot of effort to roll it away too. And to the whole time be beating off all these guys that are trying to uh, steal it from you also. So it's a, it's a lot of work to do that. And then um, the battles that we can't see underground with the tunnelers, um, those are really hard for us to observe, obviously, but that's going on too. So there's this whole, um, drama going on underneath the ground below the stung pat too of intense competition and male on male battling and then you know the scandalous sneaker males and uh all sorts of interactions that was what i wanted to ask too is, is how are you making these observations are you going out into the field do you have beetles in the lab at all um we don't and um these are not observations that i've really made with tunnelers at all um but thanks to the hard work of other people studying dung beetles um it's something that was um unclear for a long time but people are actually doing the work of um observing what's going on below the ground now um but for a long time we just weren't sure and we didn't really understand why uh dung beetles had horns um except that it was probably sexual selection Mm. but yeah only recently we've started to understand these things and there's a lot about um dung beetle biology but a lot of insect biology in general that's just unknown there's a lot to be discovered with insects Hmm. uh how how many uh, how many of you are out there in the in the dung beetle 
science community. How many people are out there studying the dung beetles? Um, I couldn't even tell you, really. Um, it's hard to say. I know of a number of labs that work with dung beetles or use dung beetle systems as a model to study something else like animal weaponry, which would be like mm. those the big horns that they used to right. battle each other, for example, or um, are using dung beetles as a model to um, understand um, biodiversity or overall health of a habitat and things like that. Um, but even at a, a national conference I went to pretty recently for um, entomology, there were not a huge number of people there um, to talk about dung beetle research. No dung beetle conferences no. just yet. <sighs> I know. I want there. To be. As that soon as there great. is, you let me know. I'm, yeah, I'm you'll be, be there. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a whole hour about dung beetles. That would be great. I'm going to come up with dung beetle yeah. puns just that, an album that you guys haven't heard mm-hmm. yet it's gonna blow everyone's oh, man. mind you're gonna it's kill gonna, it <laughs> it's gonna be pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. amazing um <laughs> so um so back to uh back to reproduction mm-hmm. one of our favorite topics yeah. this, i mean that's what how, else that's is how there? We got, there is really nothing else that's <laughs> that it's why we're here yep. it's, it's the, the name of the game of everything um how so this they're they're trilling well different species are doing it a little bit differently but say the shitholers they're going down they're they're laying their brood and then but this dung's drying out fairly fast right mm-hmm. how how off or how fast between they lay the egg and then and then they're kind of staying there guarding it mm-hmm. i guess and some of and them yeah. some of them and uh and how long are they having to wait wait around and then when it hatches are these things just off and running and on their own right yep. away uh-huh. because they're investing so many resources and getting um the egg to successfully hatch and to have that larva successfully pupate and so on um their odds of getting it to be an adult are pretty good compared to other insects that are just gonna, you know, lay a raft of eggs somewhere and take off and not ever give it a second thought. So, um, that investment pays off for them. And, um, so you'll see those behaviors where they'll, um, provision a nest, lay the egg, and they'll take off from there. There's the ones that will stick around for a while, um, make sure the, the brood ball is upright for some time that's free of fungi. Um, and then you'll have some that are also waiting until um, the adult emerges and then they'll leave. What's what's the best uh, what's the best area for the dung? Is there just some dung out there that's just the, oh, the real prize? Like where if you if you're a dung beetle, where you want to go and retire? Is there is there a particular climate or something that um, they like? They like it warm. Um, the warmer it is, the better they are t- at. Um, being fast and getting to the resource quicker, building a bung- dung ball faster and so on. So that's just the nature of being a cold-blooded organism. Um, you need that heat in the environment to be able to uh, do anything, really. Um, and so let's see. If we're wondering what the best dung is for, like, the dream dung for yeah. an animal – that's really hard to say. Um, for the most, there's so part, much great dung. There's out there. so much good dung. How do you just pick one? Ah, it doesn't seem right. Um, I guess it depends on the species. It you depends got, on the species. You got the one following the um, sloth around. Yeah, and- but 
Um, some of the things that are really attractive about... By the way, if I was a sloth and I had something crawling yeah. around on my butthole, I would be moving a little faster. Don't you think so? Sl- yeah. I, yeah. I would. But uh, anyway, back back to the more pressing <laughs> the and serious dunk. question. <laughs> um, the best the moisture content is actually a pretty attractive component for the dung beetles. Mm. Uh, so that's why overall say cattle dung is more preferred over horse dung cattle dung's like i don't remember like maybe 10 percent more um uh liquid so higher in moisture than uh horse dung but studies where they've tried to kind of suss out the the dung that gets the most beetles um, in terms of abundance, maybe not necessarily richness, like the number of species, but just overall the number of individuals is usually human dung. Um, or also some studies have found that uh, dead fish are really attractive too, hmm. which is crazy. Um, but yeah, I guess the idea is that human dung is pretty high in moisture and we also have varied diets. So th- that would appeal to perhaps a wider spectrum of dung beetles too so we are omnivores so um dung beetles that might only be attracted to carnivore poop might be attracted to ours plus all the uh herbivore dung beetles as well plus we have like beer dung and yeah stuff i like know that. yeah so interesting Good stuff, stuff cheeseburger in dung yeah, yeah. Hmm. um what about uh what about um first well two things one what is if dung beetles are eating dung? What are what are they defecating? I mean, how bad is the is the <laughs> stuff that they're uh, crapping out? Like, like is it they they are defecating, right? Yeah, uh-huh, they, are, they do. Does, does anything eat there? Um. Well, so when a larva is in that brood ball, for example, so it's stuck inside of this the spherical chamber and so while it's eating that dung that is its little nest um it's also pooping Mm -hmm. in there and so they're eating their own poop over time also while they're why not it's there um so that's an instance of them eating uh dung beetle poop um they just can't get enough they love the stuff (laughs) um there's also dung beetles that have been observed to kind of ride on the backs of millipedes and wait for them to poop and then they'll eat that dung as well Mm. um but yeah they're um the adult dung beetles have these really millipede dung millipede dung it doesn't seem like that's much of a prize i it's not very appealing to me but they seem (laughs) to be crazy about it okay (laughs) but uh yeah. Um, the adult dung beetles themselves have really, really dainty little mouth parts. So they're really not grinding up all the coarse material and dung at all. They're, it's more like they're kind of sopping up the, the juicy soup of bacteria that are in dung itself. So, um, and then the larva will actually eat the coarse material within. So like the, the plant fibers and stuff like that. So what are you working on specifically, like right now? What's your... Um, I am wrapping up a thesis on dung beetle attraction to carrion uh, in the Kansas Flint Hills. And with that one, I was just kind of looking at, um, I kind of mentioned it before at the beginning, the abundances of dung beetles at the head and tail end of rat carrion, just to see um, if there's some sort of preference that we've been overlooking and trying to... um, 
address that hypothesis before that dung beetles are only attracted to um, the contents of the gastrointestinal tract as an animal is decomposing and trying to understand that a little bit better. And um, it's been really fun and a rewarding project when we found that distribution patterns of dung beetles um, on rat carrion uh, follow the same patterns as carrion beetle distribution on rat carrion, which is really cool to me because that's um, this example of, so carrion beetles are well known to feed on carrion. They target carrion as a resource. And so to see that their distributions are similar to dung beetles could perhaps suggest that similar resources are being targeted. So dung beetles are after more than just dung. Hmm. So you're you're just you're into all the best stuff. Just oh, yeah. carcasses. If it's dung. nasty, then yeah. It's you, just, what about you? Get into puke sometimes. You, you ever think I about wish, maybe in the future studying? That uh, would studying be fun. Vomit? Yeah, I could. I don't know. Bait traps with puke and see what comes. <laughs> maybe some new species yet to be discovered. <laughs> um. So, uh, what about when? Uh, so we we've been talking a little bit about cow patties here and there. What about um, some of the insecticides and yeah. uh, that are being used these days? That's are, a great point. Yeah, that's been really uh, detrimental to dung beetles. Um, for example, um, there's this stuff called ivermectin. It's this uh, systemic dewormer that's used for cattle. It's also used for um, domestic pets. Dogs are on it a lot of the time, and they're a heartworm medication, for example. And um, this is this really general um, invertebrate killer. So it's killing nematodes, which is great for those animals and their well-being. But it's um, it's not breaking down while as it's um, moving through that animal system. So it's it's uh, excreted with the dung and it will actually kill dung beetles, which is a problem because, you know, that's the next ecological step is the dung beetles get in there and they break down the, the poo. And so... Um, that will lead to dung building up uh, in an environment, mm. which is a problem. And uh, we've had some cattle ranchers reach out to us trying to figure out why, you know, on their pastures, dung pats are not breaking down. And um, it's a really important to consider the kind of regimen that you're keeping your cattle on. And it's a hard balance to figure out because you don't want to not treat your cattle. That would be cruel. But figuring out a way to do the least harm ecologically is really important. Hmm. Um, what what do they? So someone calls and asks for your help. <laughs> yeah, I'm you, the dung detective. Do you do you, have, do you actually go out there and try to? Help? Yeah, yeah. We've gone out. Um, uh, we're working on a project with a, a bison ranch, trying to understand what's going on. Um, we oh, don't... bison! I mean, that seems yeah. like a prize. All right, I know, and especially because uh, bison is the native large herbivore for this region anyway. Cattle are not native at all; they're from Asia, and we just kind of threw them in here. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh-huh. yep. Bison, huh. bison are where it's at, not cattle. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I don't really have an answer for them about what's going on, but it's something we've gone out there and you know. Flipped over some some bison turds and tried to see what was going on. Nothing, no beetles. Some some beetles, not many. And actually, we were seeing a lot of uh, one of the introduced species from the uh, American Southwest. This guy called uh, Digionthophagus. Um, that he, 
he's made it this far into the continental U.S. now, and we're wondering if perhaps it's outcompeting the native dung beetles of this region now, and that's what's going on, or perhaps it's some sort of interaction with um, uh, dewormers, or... We, maybe we need to build a wall. Like we a, need a to beetle. build a wall. <laughs> yep. These dung beetles are stealing our dung. Yep. Um, well... I'm I'm gonna need to go and feed the beetles in a bit here. I I uh that's what I'm calling it from now on. Oh. It's, it's, it's a cuter way. Of, I like to call it making bait. Oh, yeah, yeah I like that. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it delightful? It is. Yeah. Um. That's uh, that is a lovely, lovely way of phrasing it. Uh, <laughs> I I have my uh, as we wrap up. I have my guests each week name a nonprofit of their choice. Are you, uh, by, let me guess, Bison, uh, Bison Promoter bison. Asso- Association? <laughs> um, I wanted to promote Expanding Your Horizons, which is a um, organization that encourages um, young girls, particularly around teenage age, uh, to investigate colleges, particularly STEM fields, um, and see what's there for them. This is targeted to a group of young girls that are, um, they have no family that have gone to college, and it just kind of helps them visualize themselves in that kind of world. Um, we participate in that at Wichita State University, and it's been a really rewarding experience. That is wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Rachel, thank for you. joining me. It's been great. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. I'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast, I talk with Assistant Professor of Biology at the University of Oklahoma. Catherine Marsky joins me, who is... Uh, this is this is a lot of the you know we talk a lot about um, well life in general but evolution uh, ecosystems that sort of thing this is um, oddly something that uh, kind of an intersection of a couple different topics that uh, somehow we we haven't specifically kind of talked about before we're talking about we're gonna learn a new word um, <laughs> phylogeography <laughs> I think I'm saying that right. Phylogeography. I had to look it up. I didn't. I was surprised. I didn't know this word. Um, the it's kind of the geographical distribution of genetic variation. Uh, sounds more complicated than it is, or at least we. Uh, Catherine was able to break it down and make it nice and easy for uh, for me to understand. Uh, talking about the geographic and evolutionary ecology methods to understand the history of species within a space so basically how how uh, a region affects uh, species and populations and how those populations affect a region and so on really cool conversation um so tune in for that thanks for all the wonderful reviews on itunes and for telling all of your friends and family about this show hope you're learning a lot and having a little fun along the way and thanks for the support again on patreon.com each and every little bit of your patreon support goes directly to me and it's paying for things like uh my uber and lyft rides to go to these uh podcasts and um for the uh, production costs and editing costs that sort of thing keeping the website uh 
looking crisp and clean and sparkly, uh, I would be really bad at selling <laughs> selling websites. I just realized. But uh, I hope I'm good at thanking you guys for your support on patreon.com slash Shane Moss. It is a direct bit of income right to my pocket. It's wonderful. It's really helping me out, so it, it means I can dedicate that much more time to this podcast. I'm also putting additional content on there. I appreciate it. Special thanks to Jimmy Fro with the Jimmy Fro Podcast for doing such a wonderful sound mixing job and editing job on this podcast and for introducing me to all sorts of cool indie music on his podcast, the Jimmy Fro Podcast. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly-collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine <laughs> as he approaches the red rope of the VIP pronounced ve-a-pe in Spanish <laughs> oh my gosh. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film smooth skin <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line <laughs> ciao bella it's me Scarface <laughs> 